everyone. Uh, this is episode number five, Stories from a Survivor, and I'm Diana Nicarici coming to you from my mom mobile again. No judging, okay? A lot of my time is spent in my mom mobile, actually, so I'm super grateful for it. Because <laughs> if you think about it, when I'm at home or if the kids are at home and I have someone helping out, I need to be gone. Otherwise, they won't respect that authority. When I'm at work, everyone needs something. And so, um, I don't know. Until better accommodations are made, it's going to be the van. And I think that's going to be just fine for everyone. And it's relatable. I think there are plenty of like parents out there. And even just busy individuals that kind of live in um, their car halfway. Here we go. I'm going to read to you... Um, some excerpts out of one of my favorite books. I'll always probably recommend different books that I learned certain things out of. And this particular one is called Safe People. It's by Dr. Henry Cloud and Dr. John Townsend. I talked about Dr. Henry Cloud with um, the book Boundaries. And that entire series is incredible. So hopefully you're starting your book reading list. Um, these are great um self-development and growth books and spirituality and things like that. So <clears throat> there's a little excerpt here and then I'm going to move on and then I'll start talking about my story. Okay. Something that's relatable, hopefully to everyone, but that I've gone through and just identifying different things. So safe people will also help you look inside yourself. You will find your blind spots and vulnerabilities and understand why you are easy prey to manipulative people or susceptible to controlling individuals. You'll gain important awareness of your weaknesses and learn how to mature past them. Also, you'll look inside and see the ways you yourself may be unsafe for others. That's a really important one, self-awareness. God wants to help you expose those parts and mature those areas. <clears throat> and let me give some little red flags here. Um, People in trouble don't say broad religious issues are the problem. They actually say these specific little traits. So even when you're talking about um, unsafe people, you're never going to throw diagnosis or titles or words, or you shouldn't. That's why throwing the word narcissist around is so unhealthy, because it's kind of like the kid who cried wolf. But they actually say, he doesn't listen to me. She is so perfect that she can't understand my struggles. He seems so distant that I feel alone. She always tries to control me. He makes promises but really doesn't follow through. He is condemning and judgmental. She is always angry at me for something I did or didn't do. I tend to be my worst self with him or her. I cannot trust him. And then... Um, I'm going to read just a couple of the types of unsafe people that exist because, yes, there are categories. Number one are the abandoners. Abandoners are people who can start a relationship but who can't finish it. Does that sound familiar to the dating people out there? Critics. Critics are people who take a parental role with everyone they know. They are judgmental, speak the truth without love, and have no room for grace or forgiveness. That was me, people. We'll get into that later. Irresponsibles. Irresponsibles are people who don't care for themselves, don't take care of themselves, 
or others. They have problems with delaying gratification. They don't consider the consequences of their actions and they don't follow through on their commitments. They are like grown up children. So if you've ever heard the term man child or I guess is it interchangeable female child? I'm not sure. But if you're an adult child, stop. So let's talk about it, right? That's what this whole podcast is about. Let's talk about safe people versus unsafe people. Let's talk about are you aware enough to realize when you're being a safe person and when you're not being a safe person. Some of the things that are listed here, um, which could be like red flags for you to kind of be aware of, is with irresponsible people, you may be doing the following. You pick up after them. You apologize to others for them. You make excuses for them. You give them chance after chance after chance. You pay for their sins and forgetfulness. You nag them and you resent them. And that sounds a lot like my previous marriage, to be honest, my previous relationship. And it looks a lot like what the typical like modern day dating relationships could look like as well. So... Here, I'm going to put myself under the microscope at this point. Um, I was the basically assumed parent. And I was an unsafe person during the volatility of my marriage. Um, and I'm, I, I, try, I think back in my childhood because here's the story and the backstory, right? I had to kind of grow up really fast and helped out with my younger siblings. It's just the way of like the culture, the tradition, the, the community that I grew up in. Like I've mentioned before, you know, we're immigrants. Our parents were hustling. They came with like nothing in their pockets. And so, you know, us growing up in that culture, there were expectations. Like I had my female expectations as the oldest child and my brother had his male expectations as the oldest child and they looked different. They were very gender role specific and, you know, norm specific to our medium and our culture, which we were conditioned to be a part of. So, you know, what I will say is that as a child, I feel like I, what I did step into that, you know, role of, responsibility, but because I was allowed to express myself in the way that I felt internally to express myself, which was out of a lot of sacrificial love for my younger siblings and for everyone that was around me, because I didn't have all of those other responsibilities out of life, right? Like you're not paying bills. You're not, you take these things for granted when you're a kid, but that's the reality. The reality is you have so much time while you live with your parents to develop yourself personally and to develop your insight and really sit with yourself and get to know who you are and who I was as a, a, a young kid and as an adolescent was a very giving individual. I was very patient. I was still very bold and very assertive and a lot of times like I hear from people what I used to be like in because I went through what I went through for so long, I kind of forgot who I was. And then I resurfaced as who I was back then and who I left behind and then started assimilating and trying to assimilate all the knowledge that I had 
grown into through life experience and just adulthood because you just learn so many other things and you're not naive anymore. So I don't think that I was an unsafe person back then. I think, uh, you know, I firmly believe that I would, I had a way of loving people in a very non-judgmental way and trying to, you know, in, in my own ways, because I was super religious, call people to Jesus and to that relationship. But I, from a young age, I knew that there were too many rules and regulations and that my experience in spirituality was just so different than what was being propagated in the church and at the pulpit. And, you know, I knew that I was having my like backsliding and my life experiences basically. And that God was still there for me. And I felt, you know, no condemnation other than in the, in the eyes of people. So I feel like I, I was a safe person. Yes. Naive. And yes, very, um, vulnerable and exposed myself to vulnerability. But as I got into this marriage and there were a lot of responsibilities that came with it and not only within my marriage, but also within the younger siblings that had been left behind, um, in the home, you know, my dad specifically really leaned on me for, you know, the weight that my word held with, especially our younger, um, sisters. And I still remember being well into a few years into our marriage and, um, getting phone calls and, you know, trying to ask me to, talk them into something or the other, or, you know, just involving me in parental types of conversations. And, um, you know, it was a lot of volatility there. And until a certain point, I would kind of like feed into it and I would actually like respond to it. And I felt like, you know, I, was this rock and this person and that I had a responsibility because I had such a finite amount of time to before, you know, the siblings left the house and I didn't want them. Essentially, I really didn't want them going through what I was going through at the time, to be honest. Um, there, there's really no nice way to put it. I knew how miserable my situation was, how miserable it was to not be able to communicate with someone that you love, like your family about it or anyone for that matter, without any kind of repercussions. And then also how, um, how much I just wanted for everyone else to just have like a great start at life at adulthood, because mine was just so rocky and so difficult. So at one point I do remember saying, you know, to my dad, I can't be a part of these conversations anymore. Like I, I have to be able to make that shift, especially after moving out of Arkansas into the Pacific Northwest to Washington state. Um, I remember really making that, um, commitment and that very verbal conversation with my dad and saying, I can't be your second in command. I can't, I can't do that. I have to be able to make that shift to sisterhood and just being a sibling and maybe a mentor if that's what they want in my life. But that was a really hard transition because a lot of people out of our family of origin were just so used to calling me for problems and for problem solving and to, you know, have conversation about drama that, you know, you still got sucked into that. And then 
um, one of our youngest sister moved in for, um, a brief period to finish high school and do like the certain programs that are here and just get a, a reset restart on life. And I got into that role once again of, you know, parent. And for those of you who don't know what it is, it's called parentification. Whenever, um, the parents are going through their difficulty and, and whatever their circumstances, whether it's war or divorce, traumatic divorce, or just economic hardship, things like that, that would have a parent or it's just like covert abuse, right? Manipulation control, but people and things like that, that will situations like that and circumstances that will, um, push parents into an area of, um, asking for, a high amount of responsibility from the children. And, um, whereas it's not our role as children, as, 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 as old as you are until you have your own family, you just won't understand the responsibility and the heavy weight that comes with your words and with like actually mentoring someone through life, like l life decisions. They're, they hold a really heavy weight, right? So, but as I was in that relationship and because of all this combination of experiences, I was the critic. I was the unsafe critic. And the best way for me to explain this, because I have one sibling in particular that um, had told me, it was like, you know, whenever we used to talk to you, it was like you had these absolutes and you had these judgmental things to say. And it was like there was never any conversation, there was never any really moments of sitting and like understanding and being empathetic. And even though I'm an empath and that's like one of my fortes because I was in such a guarded position and I was in such a wounded position, I had so many wounds, spiritual internal wounds from, you know, the manipulation control and difficult times I was going through. <clears throat> I, was not willing to really take any other option as into consideration. It was a very one-sided conversation where I was just executing. And even though it came from a place of true love and desire for, you know, to protect those people that I love so much from going through these things, it was so sterilized and it was so stripped of love and humanity and understanding and acceptance and, you know, true empathy, what empathy actually looks like, because there's a difference between sympathy and empathy. And if you've never heard the difference, because I hear people use it interchangeably all the time, but sympathy is feeling bad for someone, right? For someone's situation. Empathy is really putting yourself into that person's shoes and truly feeling what they feel. And that really changes the posture of the conversation at that point. And a lot of people don't know the difference. And so they'll feel bad for someone and feel guilty about something, but they won't truly be empathetic to someone. And they won't sit and really think about how that person could feel, whether it's right or wrong. There's circumstances probably, you know, if you're sitting there trying to be empathetic with someone... It's because you're in a conflicting position. You're in a conflicting conversation. You don't necessarily believe in what they're saying or 
or you're not um, having an easy time really understanding where they're coming from. So you're, you're hi, the high likelihood is that you're not in a sympathy position anyways. You're in a position where you're pretty guarded. Empathy is created as a tool to help you let your guard down, accept someone's vulnerability, and meet them with some vulnerability as well. Because that makes you personable. That makes you approachable. That makes you trustworthy. That makes you safe. Right? So I had a huge journey that I had to go through. And I couldn't even really start that journey until I left my marriage in 2019. I couldn't truly be myself because I had an intimate partner that was unsafe emotionally themselves and was watching my every move, was analyzing my every thought. I mean, every waking moment, you know, I wasn't able to just be myself. I wasn't allowed to because that person was scrutinized so heavily. So <clears throat> a lot of times you will see people that are unsafe emotionally and you will notice them and you will recognize them by their fruit, right? But I will ask that if it's a family member, if it's a great friend, if it's like a childhood friend that you've known a long time ago, any of those, you know, categories, a parent, you know, I would ask that you, you be the safe person and you demonstrate what it means to be a safe person and that you empathize with them and that you put yourself in their shoes. So for me to have healed through a lot of my childhood wounds and to be able to like love my parents without abandon and just have like my certain boundaries, it really took me putting myself in their shoes. And, you know, I kind of got a glimpse of that whenever we liquidated everything in 2018 and made a move to Romania. It was supposed to be a, a long-term move, but it wound up being a sabbatical just because the relationship fell apart and I needed to come back to the States to um, finalize the divorce proceedings and everything. Um, but putting myself in their shoes and feeling what it was like to leave your country of origin, everything you've ever known. I, and I did it step by step. So we lived in hot springs, which is hot springs, Arkansas is where I grew up, right? That's like my hometown. That's my hood. I was born in the ghettos of Detroit and that's where my ghetto side comes from. That's what I tell people all the time. But I grew up in Arkansas. Our family went there. It was like really just fertile ground for any kind of entrepreneurial anything. It was a great place to start and to kind of catapult um, economically and financially. And <clears throat> so I lived in Hot Springs for about the first nine years of our marriage. And then we moved to um, a city that was in Northeast Arkansas, it was about a three and a half hour drive from my hometown. And that was a big deal for me because at the time we had three kids. And so it felt, ve it felt very vulnerable for me to move so far away from any of my family, brand new people, brand new job, brand new everything, I, everything I didn't know. And our youngest, you know, three kids, our youngest was around eight weeks old when we relocated and I got a full-time job. And, um, I, that's when the journey started, when I started that detach and I was like, oh, I can do life without any family close by. And then, um, shortly after that, after, um, 
my ex found like found a full-time job and finished his degree we moved a little bit closer to family but it was you know the capital and it was still like an hour drive away so I was still we were still essentially just tag teaming it and coming from a relationship where there was a lot riding on my shoulders and a lot of my family saw that and would step in a lot to just like help out with kids especially when I was physically gone to work um, it was really difficult still to be so far yet so close, right? So close yet so far, however you want to say it. And so what we did was we wound up making a decision because we were both working full time. I was working overtime even. We never saw each other. We were never around the kids and we were barely making ends meet financially. So we decided to move somewhere else, which is actually where I live now, Washington State, Pacific Northwest, just across from Portland. And it's over 2,000 miles away from Arkansas. And that was a huge move. So, like, moving again and realizing, hey, I'm not dead. I didn't die. Like, I was able to do it. But seeing all of these moves and how difficult they were and how long it takes to just stabilize and um, adjust to moves. And people don't give enough credit to how long it takes to actually, like, adjust to a move. And I heard statistically speaking, it takes close to two years to actually adjust to a move. So you think about military families that are moving every few years and their kids, you think about, you know, immigrants and what they leave behind. And I'm telling you people like living in Europe, visiting Europe is different than living in Europe. Living in Europe is like living on a different planet. Everything works differently. For some reason, it is not conducive at all to families with big kids. I literally was working, wearing workout clothes every time I'd go to the Costco of Romania, which is Selgros, because you would, and anybody that's, that's lived in Europe and knows about this, like knows what I'm talking about. Like you literally, you, you fill up your cart, then you have to make sure that you are as strategic as you possibly can be and you, because they don't have a cart at the end and they don't have anyone helping you bag or anything, you put all of your stuff on the, on the belt, but you put it in a way where your produce is at the end so that you can run to the other side and you can catch whatever they're just like carelessly throwing. Because if anyone's ever been to Europe, you know, it's not about customer service. They don't care about customer service. The U S is the consumer capital of the world. And it is so customer service driven. It's not even funny. Like it's just such a huge difference. But all that to say, I finally started understanding what our parents went through and what a huge adjustment it was. Like, especially for like our mom that left like her mom and her family and everything she knew and any of the help that she could have received with kids and was all alone. Now she had the in-laws, but that wasn't a great relationship as a lot of times it just happens, right? So I'm not going to like dive into that. That's, that's my family too. I love both sides equally much. And so I'm not going to dive into any of that conversation quite yet, but, um, just seeing what they had been through and like the fact that they came here and they didn't know any of the language. I had a lot more empathy towards them knowing now what I know I understand that like they grew up in a communist country where 
information was very limited. You didn't really know about um, anything. And mental health and the treatment of mental health was so taboo. Like anything that had to do with, you know, balancing your body and balancing your mind and your chemicals and hormones and things like that. Like that was something so unexplored around there. And so they dealt, you know, psychology, counseling, those are all taboo that they were and they kind of still are even to this day. There's there's a reason people don't take their children to therapy. More on that in a little bit. But so I finally started understanding, hey, my parents did the best that they could do. As long as you felt genuine and authentic love from your parents, you know that they did their best. And so as an adult, I encourage you to have those conversations with your parents and heal those childhood wounds so that they don't continue to follow you through adulthood. Because I can almost 100% guarantee that unless your parents are an actual textbook narcissist or abusive, they have so much regret and remorse. And even if they are abusive or they were addicted to a substance or, you know, things like that, they still have so much regret and remorse because as you age, you have this wisdom that accompanies with age. Like in Romanian, there's a saying uh, and it says, um, I'm going to try and translate it, but it says, I am Batrini de Jaba. And basically it says, you grew old for nothing. Like there, there was no reason. Basically you didn't accumulate the knowledge in the years of life experience that you should have gotten. So Why'd you even grow up? You know, what was the point? So what I will say is that, you know, I see so many, so many older people and I talk to them and I have authentic conversations with them and they've told me, you know, um, I regret, like I asked one gentleman, this a cutest old man I think I've met in my life. Um, just super sweet. And we were meeting about business and then we had a, just a personal conversation, over some food. And I said, if there was one thing that you wish you could take back to your younger self and have like the knowledge, just like instantaneous, everything you learned now and take it back and apply it to your young adulthood, what would it be? And you know what his answer was? His answer was how to be in a relationship appropriately, which basically tells me he wishes he would have learned how to be a safe person, right? Because if you think about relationships failing and, you know, he, he went through a divorce and kind of went through a phase of estrangement towards his kids. So if you think about that scenario, think about how much could have been prevented if he would have had the knowledge. This little book, I mean, this book is such a quick read. Like there's really no reason to not read it. And to not really evaluate yourself. They, he even has a, uh, a workbook that comes with it. You can order it on Amazon. It's on Audible. Everything. And that's a book that I'm actually working through with my own kids. We started it when I first, you know, we first moved out here. And I knew that they were going to start um, having, you know, visitation with their dad again. And their dad was very volatile emotionally back then just it was a very traumatic experience I think for him as well because I don't, I don't think he really ever believed that I was going to leave and so it was a shock and so I wanted them you know as the protective parent 
it's a really hard pill to swallow when you know that, you know, there have been some traumatic events in your children's lives and that you're no longer there to protect them essentially emotionally. And I know that there's authentic love there and everything. Um, but I wanted them to feel really well prepared for their interactions. And, you know, I'm thinking to myself and maybe this will help someone else think about it, but it really, there really is a lot of value in teaching your children about manipulation, control, safe versus unsafe people emotionally, um, and all of the red flags and green flags, because who better to practice these with than with a parent that loves them, right? Who better? I, I Tell me a better person. And I'll tell you this, just because I've taught them this to be in effort of being their protective parent, it's actually protecting them against me and my unsafe moments too, because there are moments when we are burnt out as parents and we will lash out and we will yell or we will like brashly punish them in a way where they're just like, really? I just literally like sneezed too loud and now I'm grounded from, you know, whatever electronics for a week. That was, that's kind of like excessive mom. And I've had those conversations with my kids. And as a parent, I've apologized to my kids before. Because if they can't see you being human and owning your own mistakes and being self-aware, then where are they going to learn it from? Where are they going to learn to be accountable to their own actions and emotions? Where are they going to learn to be that safe person that we, we all make mistakes, but to own your mistakes and to love someone enough to tell them, I made a mistake and I feel really badly about it. Will you forgive me? And then to watch that person change their behavior in order to be that safe person for them. Like what's more beautiful than that, to be honest? Like, I don't think there's anything more, more beautiful than showing your children the authenticity and vulnerability that it means to be a real human, just, just approachable and real. Um, that's a skill that they need to learn in life and they need to be able to believe and trust in. And so, um, <clears throat> becoming a safe person really took me becoming a safe person with myself. I I'm going to talk so much about self love and about self rediscovery and healing and things like that, because that's the journey that I went through when I finally decided I had to leave I felt numb inside. I lit I felt numb inside. I felt borderline dead inside. On the outside, I was alive. I was a person. I was operating. I was functioning at a very high level. I always have, always probably will. But on the inside, I felt numb. And that's how you know that you are betraying yourself so much that your spiritual being has to go numb and has to basically ignore you and has to just go through self perseverance. Like they, it has to like preserve itself. It has to protect itself from you, from your mind, because your mind, although it's the most powerful tool and because it's the most powerful tool, it can also be the most powerful, um, the most destructive tool. Okay. So you have to make sure that you are feeding your mind the right words, the right thoughts, the right visualizations to inspire your entire being 
including your spiritual being, that they're okay and that it's okay to be just authentically you, who you are. And so whenever I finally left and started dealing with all of my inner wounds with one of my spiritual mentors, I started realizing that I've lived almost an entire life of self-betrayal. And I had perfected that where I just kind of like put myself to the wayside. I talked yesterday during my recording session about, about actually, um, loving myself. And when I asked myself the question, like, would, would people love me as much if I treated them as I treated myself? So every time I made a decision to love others more than myself, I betrayed my inner self. Does that make sense? Every time you put yourself second out of an un, out of a subconscious type of decision where it's not a conscious, I realize I'm sacrificing for this person, but it comes out of love because that when you give, right, you've heard that saying to give is many times better than to receive. So when you're giving from a place of abundance, that's a different story. I'm not saying that. I'm saying when you feel like you're wrongdoing yourself for the good of someone else and you don't truly believe in your mission, that's when you know you're betraying yourself. Or when you're in a conversation with a family member or with a friend or with anyone that makes you feel like you're quenching yourself and you're like, uh, um, I see where they're coming from, but I don't agree with it and you agree with it anyway, and you don't confront the conversation, that's when you're being unsafe with yourself. And that's when the lack of trust comes to your spiritual being. And that's when you betray yourself. And self-betrayal is just so huge. It's, It's a snowball effect. You do it once, you do it again, you do it again. And then it becomes this huge mountain that you need to climb and pick apart because now you're in a position a few months, a few years later, where you no longer trust yourself. You second guess every single decision that you make. True story. I I had a hard time making decisions about anything once I left because I was so accustomed to having someone else that was needing to know them. And then I had to wait for the feedback. I was stripped of as independent as I was even during my marriage. I was stripped of so much of my independence as a human. And so you need to preserve that so that you can trust yourself and trust that you will be a safe person for you. And then as you get to know what that safe person looks like for you, now you can be that safe person for others. So once I finally tore away from that relationship that was so toxic for my being, and for our family in general, I was then able to shift the perspective and start becoming a safe person for others. But that was a journey, and I wasn't always understood during that journey. I was called very, very many times, you know, selfish. I was called self-righteous. I was called many different names and described in many different ways. But what I knew, because I was in such an extreme mode of healing was that I can't listen to them. I need to listen to myself first. And with time, I learned how to interact. And 
you know, there were moments when I had to literally like really iterate my boundaries in some relationships and either block people out of my life for a a specific amount of time while I worked on myself emotionally and kind of reset the relationship, um, confronted with conversations, like really uncomfortable conversations, even with people that I did trust and loved, but you know, I just like, I didn't agree with their, you know, narrative and their line that they drew within our relationship. And so I had to articulate myself and say, you know, no, this isn't the way it's going to go. I felt like this when you this, and therefore I will be doing this. If you can't accept it, then I respect the fact that you can't accept it, but that's the way I'm going to do life. And we're not going to do life in that category together because it seems like you can't understand that. And I've had many of conversations like that with one of my dearest friends and, you know, we get along so well. We're like sisters, but there were moments when we had difficult conversations and, you know, she would say something about a situation and then I would have to like really get uncomfortable and confront the conversation and say, this is how I feel about it. I can't betray myself by doing what you ask just because you say so, because in my mind, this is what it logically looks like. And we came to agreements and to consensus. We talked our way through. Like, that's what healthy communication looks like. That's what a safe person looks like. A safe person will always tell you up front in person, you know, not in person, but over the phone or whatever, in, during communication, will tell you, you know, this is how I feel. And this is how this makes me feel. And can you be this person for me? And will give you the opportunity to show up for them. And at that point, the tables have turned, you know, the balls in your court, however you want to say it. But at this point you have a decision that you can make. And there's one of two that is going to happen. Either you're going to choose to be a fellow safe person and to acknowledge their feelings and to show them your respect for them and to like really show up for them. Or you're going to be an unsafe person and challenge their own boundaries, which I'm going to tell you right now, if they're confronting you with it, it's because They're trying not to betray themselves. And if you are claiming to be a safe person, but you are essentially forcing them to betray themselves, you're not being safe. You're asking them to slowly kill their inner being, their spiritual being. Don't do it. Don't do it. They need you to be safe. They need you to be able to just accept them. Because at the end of the day, one of the largest... um, one of the largest epiphanies I did have amongst my many, many epiphanies that I will talk to you about over this podcast was the fact that, you know, free will is free will. You can, even in a religious sector, and I know I'm going to get probably a lot of flack from this statement, but if you're a parent or if you've even had parents and you've had this experience where you've healed the past relationship and now you're an adult and they love you, you know, as a parent, like uh, that's, I feel like that's what makes the relationship with God so beautiful, that, that sonship daughtership, right? Because at the end of the day, God doesn't force anyone to be anything. He just won't. I made that mistake. I prayed, I fasted. I thought if I follow all the rules, 1000% that there was magically going to be this change that happened in our relationship and in our marriage. 
not true. The person has to make that decision themselves. It's out of their own free will. That's how we're created. And so what would happen was, you know, I, I thought that, I thought that, you know, we have control over will. And so when I was an unsafe person, the critic category, because I have categorized myself, my old self, I'm not that person anymore. But when I was doing that, the problem was that I didn't have a safe place to be myself either. I was stripped of a lot of decisions that would come out of my own free will. And so I had to have such a strong will every time was a fight to get my way, what I believed in, right? Trying to be safe for myself, a lot of times essentially meant argument and fighting and confrontation and heavy articulation and hours and hours of conversation. So make sure that you are aware and that when you are engaging in a conflicting conversation with someone that first of all you are safe to yourself if it's not a safe conversation for you leave it you're perfectly entitled to leave a conversation you have control over your life and what kind of information floods your life so be able to leave the conversation first of all if you need to be true to yourself and then make the decision to be compassionate enough to be a safe person for that other person because they may have all the perfectly good intentions but not have the tools and not be safe for themselves and if you can detach yourself from the narrative and not make it personal how much better will the conversation go when you can just empathize and say i see where you're at and i see where you're going on the same token because I was that person in the marriage that was always, you know, trying to empathize and see it from their shoes. I'm, I'm an empath. Remember, you need to make sure that you are watching their patterns, that you are with them and dating or married to or friends with their patterns, their behavioral patterns, because that is who they truly are. Not what they say. There are a lot of people that are super educated because they listen to podcasts all the time. They read books. They watch the news. And they seem so educated, right? But, and they, pro they are. That's information. Education is information. But are they safe? Are they emotionally intelligent? Emotional intelligence is not, is not received through passive information or reading or that... It's received through experience. So emotional intelligence, I'm going to challenge you the next time someone says they have emotional intelligence or you say you have emotional intelligence, I challenge you to sit and think about that and say to yourself, like, have I actually been working on emotional intelligence? That means, have I learned conflict resolution? Have I learned de-escalation of conflict? Have I learned how to be that safe person for people and ask for feedback? Because that's the best thing that you can do to self-evaluate, be self-aware, and actually have the growth spurts that you need to have in order to be able to really show up for yourself and for other people that you love. Because at the end of the day, that's what it's all about. We love we love humans. We love our lives. We love so many things in life. And it, love is something so infinite and beautiful. And it's not worth living a life void of love, right? So 
I hope that this um, message comes strongly and clearly. I, I really felt it on my heart to talk about it. And so, you know, here I go. <laughs> and now I want to thank you for being here for this really hard conversation. This is not an easy one. And this is going to maybe um, prune a lot of your relationships in life. It's going to uh, rattle some cages, shake some trees, and some dead leaves are probably going to fall. But at the end of the day, make sure that you understand that pruning will also bring forth better fruit in the next season of your life. So don't be afraid to prune relationships. Don't be afraid to snip, not necessarily cut them out of your life, but cut the amount of time that you spend with them and maybe allocate more time for yourself, for you to get to know yourself, for you to read these books, for you to actually understand where you're coming from, okay? And where your wounds come from and heal those. That'll make you the best version of yourself that you could possibly be, all right? Okay, until next time, 